SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast, coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. Follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC and follow him at CJ O'Gara. And believe it or not, listeners, but my holiday wish has already come true. It's a Christmas miracle because Connor is actually alongside me in studio for the show. Connor, it is fantastic to see you in three-dimensional form once again. You know, I, I, I crawled out of my mom's basement and got here, and it's it's been great. I mean, to be in person, in the flesh, to actually see my face as you're yelling at me, it's going to be a real treat today. Yes, and you don't sound like you're in a tunnel in Honduras somewhere, which is obviously helpful. The SDS podcast is brought to you by Ticket City. While the regular season is sadly in the rearview mirror already, Your holiday season is going to be chock full of bowl games. Nine of the 14 teams in the SEC are going bowling. Missouri plays Texas. Texas A&M gets Wake Forest. Kentucky plays Northwestern. Mississippi State plays Louisville. South Carolina gets Michigan, Auburn, and UCF. LSU gets Notre Dame. And, of course, Georgia and Alabama in the college football playoff. The Bulldogs get Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl, and the Crimson Tide will face Clemson yet again in the Sugar Bowl. We've been working with Ticket City for a long time. They are the experts in the business. A million and a half customers served at this point. They've been the place to go for almost 30 years. But best of all, Ticket City is offering $20 off all of our Saturday Down South readers and listeners, is what I'm trying to say. All you need to do is go to TicketCity.com, enter the discount code SDS20 at checkout. You're going to get 20 bucks off the game of your choice. Again, TicketCity.com, discount code SDS20. Get off the couch, go to the game, and it's a bowl game. Visit TicketCity today. All right, Connor, let's begin with some big, big news out of the SEC at the game's most important position. Shea Patterson, former Ole Miss quarterback Shea Patterson, he's off to Big Ten country. He's going to Michigan. What are your immediate thoughts on ramifications for the Rebels in Oxford and the Wolverines in Ann Arbor? Well, for both parties, I think that this could have some some actual long and short-term benefits. If you're looking at the Michigan side, of course, everybody has talked about the fact that since Jim Harbaugh has been in Ann Arbor, they have not had a quarterback. Now they have one. Shea Patterson is that game-changing quarterback that the Wolverines have been desperate for in the past few years. And now they're going to have a guy who, let's be honest, is a whole lot better than anything they've had the past three years. Jake Rudock, a former transfer himself, has actually been Michigan's best quarterback in the Harbaugh era. I know that's hard to believe, and people have been really critical of Jim Harbaugh, but now he is going to have a guy who can take over a game, is used to having the entire team on his back, so to speak, at Ole Miss, And, you know, if you're Ole Miss, there there really wasn't a whole lot you can do about the fact that Shea Patterson was going to want to go somewhere else and pursue his options because of the fact that Ole Miss isn't going to be able to play in the postseason next year. And you got to be just sitting there thinking, okay, well, we've got a pretty solid backup in in Jordan Tiamu and a guy who is going to be able to do some big things, did some great things for the Rebels down the stretch, ran that offense extremely well. And... (laughs) I don't really think that Rebels fans are are too sad about Shea Patterson leaving, which is kind of a weird a weird thing to think about because you go back to when Shea Patterson was injured, I believe it was in the eighth game of the season, seventh game of the season, and there was there were some devastated Ole Miss fans. 
the tone, I think, has changed a little bit just because of they've seen what's on the other side. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Ole Miss has accepted the fact that he was going to leave. And they understand that they're in a tough situation. This is a young man with a bright NFL future, presumably. And he can't just wait around for Ole Miss to get out of the woods with the NCAA forever. So I think a lot of Rebels fans have been, you know what, they've been okay with it. And they understand that this is a young man that deserves an opportunity. They're not cursing his name out the door, nor should they be. But coupled with the fact that they like what they saw from Jordan Te'amu. So clearly they think they've got a guy behind him that can do pretty well. And you can make an argument that Tayama was even better with the offense than Patterson was. It's hard to believe, but the completion percentage was better. The touchdown to interception ratio was better. The yards per attempt was better. Now, of course, we need to mention that Patterson got the start against Alabama and against LSU and against Auburn. So he faced the premier defenses in the SEC. However, I think Tiamo is the type of guy who could put up some good numbers for this team. But as I wrote in a column the other day, early plug alert, this really is a guy early. That's very the, way, early. way earlier than I did. That's, yeah, I had, that's surprising. Yeah, I had a surprise you before he even got in the building. But <laughs> this is a type of guy where the number two quarterback is always the most popular guy on any team. Now he's the un, unquestioned number one quarterback, and that changes his role for this program. It's interesting to think about the fact that <clears throat> Ole Miss with, with Matt Luke and what this offense is going to try and do, given the fact that they're going to have so much of that outside talent back, you're really not looking at this offense and thinking, "Wow, we're we're gonna we're gonna really have a big step back next year," despite the fact that they are gonna have these sanctions. Um, if you're Ole Miss, you got to be thinking this is about as good of a situation as you could have asked for when you have a five-star recruit at the quarterback position leave. And for Michigan, you're sitting there thinking, "All right, we're we're in business now." I mean, even Dwayne Haskins, Ohio State quarterback, uh, quarterback of the future, so to speak, was tweeting yesterday. All right, this rivalry just got a little bit more interesting. And for Michigan fans who are listening to the SDS podcast, bless you, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people who love Brandon Peters, and I'm one of those. I think Brandon Peters did a lot of great things for this offense in a limited sample size, but. Shea Patterson is a game changer. He is a guy that's going to be able to go over the top of a defense. He's going to be a guy that can rally a team that's down 14, 21 points. And those don't grow on trees. So I I think if Shea Patterson is eligible in 2018, he is going to be the guy. Jim Harbaugh is going to make this out to be like it's some quarterback battle. But Shea Patterson's not going to Ann Arbor unless he's starting in 2018, and I firmly believe that. Now, he's probably going to end up starting. He's going to have to petition the NCAA to do that because he's not a graduate transfer. He's not a senior in terms of eligibility. But you know what? There's a lot of sympathy out there for these Ole Miss kids, and I think the NCAA will probably do the right thing and let him play right away. And you're right. This is probably a part of the decision. If he knew he was going to sit out next year, go ahead and stay at Ole Miss. Throw for 4,000 yards and then go to the league. But I want to keep it with the maize and blue just for a minute. And I want to know how he fits in with a guy like Coach Harbaugh. Now, he gets a lot of credit for what he's done with quarterbacks before he got to Michigan. Andrew Luck was his guy at Stanford. He goes on to be the number one pick in the draft. Colin Kaepernick was a guy who he turned into a sensational player and got to a Super Bowl. Very, very different players. Andrew Luck is the type of guy who's going to throw it from the pocket. Kaepernick is the read option kind of guy who can kill you with his legs. Patterson is a little bit of both. He's very, very nimble, but he doesn't necessarily run to get yards positively. He likes to just keep plays alive and then let the scramble drill kind of do his thing. So how do you think Patterson fits in with Harbaugh 
and the shape of this Michigan offense. Well, it's funny because I think a lot of Michigan people looked at the rushing numbers for for Shea Patterson and they're like, wait, this guy is mobile? That's not what he's about. And it's not. It's not at all. Until you flip on the film and watch the fact that this guy can escape pass rushers um, almost at will and still make those big-time throws on the run. He's almost kind of like a, a Russell Wilson. I know Johnny Manziel has been the comparison over the years, and rightfully so, but uh, it's for Harbaugh, this is going to be almost like a Colin Kaepernick-type situation and what he dealt with in San Francisco and being able to build him into the quarterback he was, of course, before uh, everything that happened in the last year with him. But this is a guy that Harbaugh can absolutely work with. Jim Harbaugh is not necessarily a guy that – is going to say, I need a a dual-threat guy, I need a pocket passer. He just wants a guy that can make all the throws, and he hasn't had that guy, and I think that's ultimately what's been holding him back from reaching that next level of success. And Andrew Luck, yes, you know he didn't win a national championship, and people like to get on Jim Harbaugh with the fact that they didn't even win their own division and all that stuff, and I get it, but you're looking at a guy who was turned into a phenomenal, once-in-a-generation prospect under Harbaugh's tutelage, can Patterson be that next guy? I don't know, but I, I'm certainly not willing to count that out at this point. I think that he loves the fact that Harbaugh is a quarterback guy. He's going to work with him directly, and now he is somebody who has tremendous skill and upside that's going to be able to do some big things in that Michigan offense. And here's another reason to be excited about this move if you're a Shea Patterson. When you talk about John, uh, Jim Harbaugh, the way he develops a quarterback, versus, say, a Jimbo Fisher, just to make the the difference here. If you look back at that San Francisco 49ers team that had Alex Smith as a starting quarterback and then made the change to Colin Kaepernick, that offense at the beginning of the year to the offense at the end of the year almost didn't resemble each other at all. Totally different. Just a perfect example of a coach who understands the talent he had taking the snap and needing to change the offense accordingly. It was completely 180 degrees different versus, again, like a Jimbo Fisher where he has his offense. You better fit. You better learn it. And you're going to run it. And that's all there is to it. Yeah, there's some little tweaks here and there if a kid can run or if he can't. But primarily, it's his offense. Harbaugh is the type of guy who can get someone like Patterson, who is nothing like Wilton Spate, nothing like John O'Corn, very little like a Brandon Peters, and he can transform his offense. So I think there's reason to believe Paul Feinbaum said it himself that this move alone might make Michigan a national championship contender. And for everyone that's doubting the credentials of Shea Patterson coming in and, and looking at the John O'Corn comparison, just stop Come it. Come on. Just stop it. That's ridiculous to think that John O'Corn playing against American Athletic Conference def- defenses was playing against the same competition as Shea Patterson is absolutely absurd. Don't make that comparison. Flip on the film. Watch what Shea Patterson can do. I said this yesterday. Here's here's my plug alert. We've got to have a drop for this. One day we'll, we'll get a drop for this when, when I come in with, with my plug for the column that I wrote yesterday about Shea Patterson and the fact that this guy, yes, he's going to be in a supposed quarterback battle, but it's not going to take long for Michigan teammates to see the throws that he can make and throws that Brandon Peters can make at this stage of his career and say, wow. That's why everybody was so excited about this kid, and he is going to be that guy in this offense. And he's going to be different than anything Big Ten offenses have really seen. They haven't had this kind of a game-changing quarterback in the conference, and I know Scott Frost is going to try and do some of those similar concepts at Nebraska, but that's going to take a bit. And I think the the talent coupled with the skill set and Harbaugh's tutelage is going to make Michigan a whole different team in, in, the, in the very near future. Now let's remember who butters our bread here, and let's keep it back to Ole Miss and what this means for the Rebels program. Now this was a guy who could have left 
a year ago when things went to hell with Hugh Freeze and that situation spiraled out of control. There was speculation then that Patterson could walk because he was so close to Freeze. Now, he chose to stay. He was loyal to his teammates. It was very commendable of him. He was a good soldier. But now he's gone, and that's fine. But what is left behind for Jordan Tayamu? I know he's still got a bunch of receivers. A.J. Brown says he's still going to be there. Your Boletnikoff Award finalist, incredible player. Still lots of guys who can catch the ball. The offensive line was better this year than a year ago. Running the ball, yeah, Jordan Wilkins was a senior, but they'll find somebody who can run the ball. But what is left for this guy? You're not going to a bowl game. Your recruiting class is currently ranked 66th, so there's not a lot of immediate help coming in with freshmen. You know plenty of other guys are going to follow Patterson out the door. I thought 6-6 six and six wasn't too bad for Ole Miss this year, all things considered. What can we expect for them in 2018? I think 6-6 six and six would be a solid season for Probably. the next year. I think that's where the... I don't want to say the ceiling is because we've seen crazy things happen and teams can go eight and four and it's really not that spectacular in this day and age in college football. But I think six and six is a a realistic hope if I'm a Rebels fan, knowing that six and six isn't necessarily getting me a postseason berth, but kind of similar to this year. If you can win the Egg Bowl and do some fun things on offense and just be entertaining, and I think that's so important. And, and really, maybe we don't talk about this enough. If you're going to have a team that's not going to a postseason game or really playing for anything specific, at least be fun to watch. And I think Ole Miss is still going to be able to do that. And I think that was part of the appeal of keeping Matt Luke on board to be able to say, we can still run our high-powered offense. We're still going to light up the scoreboard. We're not going to play a whole lot of defense. We're not going to do a lot of that that whole tackling thing. But we're going to put up some points, and we're going to have these big studs on the outside, and we're going to have a guy that can get them the ball. And I think if you're Ole Miss right now, that's that's about all you can ask for. It can be so, so, so much worse for a program that is dealing with sanctions right now. Uh, they really haven't seen the bottom fall out. And I don't think right. I don't foresee a season like Tennessee where they just don't win an SEC game. They have too much talent on the outside for that to happen. Yeah, and this the problem for Ole Miss in terms of the sanctions, it's not going to be felt next year. Chances are it's going to be like 2019 and 2020. It's not going to be the fact that you didn't go to a bowl game this year and you can't go to one next year. It's what happens if you've signed the 48th class in America and next year you get the 55th class in America. Now spinning it ahead, you're in real trouble, especially because Mississippi State is in position to be on the other side of this teeter-totter. Even though you lose Dan Mullen, Joe Moorhead comes in, the recruiting trail in the Magnolia State is clearly pointing to Starkville right now not Oxford. But in terms of 2018, it's not a bad schedule. I'm peeking at it right now. You open with Texas Tech, uh, Houston, that's a you know a neutral site game. Out of conference, you've got Southern Illinois, you've got ULM, you've got Kent State. You can make a reasonable case there. Do you win all four of those games? The SEC West is the SEC West, of course, but in terms of your crossover games, you got South Carolina at home, and then you've got at Vanderbilt. Those are your two teams from the East. Not that bad. So six, maybe even seven wins, I think is possible for the Rebels, basically because the schedule's not that bad, and they're still going to score a ton of points. That's what this offense does. And you look at that division now, the fact that you have an Arkansas team in there that is going to basically try and copy sort of the Ole Miss principle of spread it out. We're going to, with Chad Morris, we're just going to try and get it out to our receivers, get them, in, get them the ball in space. And just try and light up the scoreboard and hope that that's going to be able to work and we're going to maybe be able to pull off a couple upsets, beat a team like, you know, an Auburn or, you know, those those teams that have these these super fast defenses that you've got to be able to scheme against. 
And that division, I think, is still really, really interesting. Even without Shea Patterson, you still have sort of an offensive renaissance that's going on um, in in the SEC West and what they're going to be able to do. So I, I Texas A and M is going to look a lot different. Yeah. Texas with with Jimbo Fisher versus Kevin Sumlin. That that's a good point too, and maybe something that we've we've sort of overlooked and lost uh, in in sort of this hoopla of of the coaching carousel. But yeah, the amount of offensive minded coaches in that division is it's absurd right now here's one thing for those games in 2018 for the rebels you better bet the over oh yeah because Ooh, a yeah. they're going to score a lot of points and b what are the rebels going to have on defense because demarcus gates he's out of eligibility and marquise haynes he's out of eligibility and breland speaks really good junior is already some chatter he's going to the league i don't know who they're going to stop and how they're going to stop anybody but what do you think the over under is on that texas tech game to start off the season 85 Oh my! Um, First to fifty nine, wins, ninety. It's possible. Ninety-one. I mean, that's not that's not crazy, right? I it's mean, not crazy. If you're not doing anything opening weekend, mark your calendar for that one because that is going to be electric. I'm looking forward to that yeah. already. Offensive and defensive line optional for that game. That's going to be glorified flag football, seven on seven. It will be really, really fun to watch. But it's going to be probably 850 yards of passing in a four and a half hour ball game. No, that that'd be a good one. I love it when. It, it, because everybody's going to forget that it's an SEC team playing in, in this game. Of and it's going to feel just like a, a, a middle-of-the-year Big 12 shootout. Before we move on to the next topic, Matt Luke. How would you grade year one Matt Luke, interim now full-time? I thought he did a pretty good job. All things considered, all the noise, I thought he did okay. I thought he did okay, too, given the circumstances that he inherited. Ole Miss fans don't like some of his game management tactics but that, that's that, that comes with first time head coach. coach at any level it's hard and you don't have to ever worry about those those time management things and using your timeouts and all those things I expect those things to improve in year two but yeah I, I think that we're looking at a team that's maybe a five six win team at best and I'm hoping that it doesn't get much worse than that if I'm an Ole Miss fan well and he was really the only guy to get the job there were some Ole Miss fans wondering why they didn't get into the coaching derby but clearly timing was not on their side here he was the only choice he was the least expensive choice chances are and with those NCAA sanctions swirling above you got to stick with the local guy the guy who bleeds navy blue and cardinal red that really matters he's going to do his damnedest to make sure he gets this program back he's going to have loyalty to the program and if you bring in some hired gun you weren't going to get that no you absolutely weren't you got to keep your identity in place Ole Miss's identity was was those offensive playmakers. They weren't going to be able to bring in a defensive guy, an outside hire, and say, oh, yeah, here, come and play for this guy, this guy that doesn't know anything about our program that's going to inherit all of these things. And what's to say he can't just book it and leave all of a sudden, much like a Bill O'Brien did at Penn State. So I think ultimately it was the right move. It's not necessarily a move that's going to get a ton of people excited, but could be a whole lot worse. Yeah, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Coach Luke was a lot more responsible with his school-issued cell phone, but that's just my opinion. If you're listening, then you know the South <laughs> loves football, and you know what the South loves even more? Crystal Burgers. That's right. Crystal, the home of the classic Crystal Burger. They're a Saturday Down South sponsor this year, and they are ready to hook you up for your tailgate. The classic Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college way after midnight, still only 79 cents. All day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. Best of all, Crystal is hooking up. Your Saturday Down South readers and listeners this fall, just text SDS to 37793, and you're going to get two free crystals and a drink. 
So if you don't get those free crystals, you still got 79 cent crystals. I guarantee if you come to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to be treated like the hero that you are. All right, Connor, there was obviously a lot of coaching turnover in the SEC. Matt Luke goes from interim to full-time, but outside of him, five different coaches in the SEC. Lots of turnover. So let's get into the meat and bones of that conversation. And by the time this block is over, I want your favorite hire and your least favorite hire of the five new guys. Right, and it's it's amazing to think about how much change we've seen in the SEC just over the past two weeks, really. And we haven't really had a chance to address the um, the, the Tennessee hire, the the coaching carousel that finally reached its its stopping point in Knoxville, uh, bringing in Jeremy Pruitt, of course. Mercifully. Yeah, mercifully. And it's it's interesting to see the way that this conference has has changed so much in, in these couple weeks and the new identities that these coaches are going to try and bring in. Of course, you got a guy like Jeremy Pruitt, who is another Nick Saban disciple who gets a job. And that that's sort of been the theme in the SEC now. Um, I think it's, what, four different Nick Saban disciples have SEC head coaching jobs at this point, which is crazy to think about. And, and Jim McElwain, of course, was just fired uh, in the past couple of months here. But, you know, Jeremy Pruitt to Tennessee is, is an interesting move, not necessarily a move that I was crazy about, um, just because I do think that there are, there's risks there. There's tremendous risk in having a guy who has never run his own program before. And I understand um, Kirby Smart. The fact that he is having the success that he's having right now has maybe opened up the door for some of that thinking to think that a guy who has never, ever run his own program, not even his own high school program, if nope. you remember you know, the defensive coordinator at Hoover High, of course, of two-a-days fame, um, don't ask uh, Jeremy Pruitt about asparagus, by the way. He, he's <laughs> not about that life. Um, but yeah, I mean, just an interesting move from from the Tennessee standpoint and seeing the direction that they ultimately decided to go in with Philip Fulmer in place as the AD kind of caught a few people by surprise, I think. But maybe maybe a move that in the long run, we're looking back with the same way that we're looking back at the Kirby smart move, thinking they took a bit of a risk, but it was the smart move to make. And they trusted a guy who uh, his credentials as, as a recruiter and as a defensive mind spoke for themselves, and he was able to sort of catch on to running his own program. Now, I want to hold off on my Tennessee comments because they're going to be colorful as always, but I want to <laughs> get into Mississippi State and Joe Moorhead because he is a name that SEC fans don't really know. Jeremy Pruitt is a guy SEC fans know, whether it was Florida State or Georgia or Alabama. He's a guy they're familiar with to some degree. That's not the case for Joe Moorhead. But you're pretty tied into the Big Ten. This is a guy who did some pretty sensational things with that Penn State offense. And you need an offensive guy if you go to Mississippi State. Kind of like with Ole Miss, that's become the identity. Let's score a lot of points. Let's be fun. Let's be fascinating on offense. And Nick Fitzgerald presumably will come back healthy. So how do you see Joe Moorhead coming in offensively in particular with a backfield of Nick Fitzgerald and Eris Williams? Is there any reason to believe that's going to be Trace McSorley and Saquon Barkley all over again? Well, absolutely, in my opinion. And this might surprise some people, but when when I saw the news of this hire, I thought to myself, that is my favorite SEC coaching hire so far. No kidding. And that I know that's going to surprise a lot of people because he's an outside hire. He doesn't really have roots in the in the southeast in the zero back, yeah none whatsoever and he, this is a a northeast guy and not a lot of people really had even heard of him before he got to penn state but the job that he did at penn state the last two years i know sec fans love james franklin and think that he's great for the job that he did at vanderbilt i don't think james franklin is employed if joe moorhead doesn't come to penn state hmm. and i think that's 
that's not that crazy of a take if you ask Penn State fans because they see the transformation that this offense went through. Saquon Barkley was 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 a stud as a freshman. Penn State wasn't that good. Trace McSorley saw his game reach new heights under Joe Moorhead and the, the freedom that he gave him to be able to take those shots downfield, to be able to trust him with the RPOs. And he loves the fact that his running, he loves a do-it-all running back. And I wrote about Eris Williams, plug alert. I wrote about Eris Williams and how he stands to benefit more than anyone in this offense. I think his upside and the, the things that he's going to be able to do out of the backfield, not only as a pass blocker, but as a pass catcher, is going to be tremendous for this offense. And I know Nick Fitzgerald in, in the comp to Trace McSorley is an easy one to make. Nick Fitzgerald has to improve his downfield accuracy to work in Joe Moorhead's offense. Joe Moorhead is a creative mind. He loves to be able to get guys in motion. He loves to do all the misdirection stuff, and he loves to spread things out. But he needs to be able to attack downfield for those lanes to be able to open. But I do think that Joe Moorhead is such a great offensive mind in this sport and things that he was able to do against elite defenses the last couple years, I I think that was just such a tremendous hire and the perfect replacement for Dan Mullen. You know, in terms of Patterson, not Patterson, I keep sticking with Patterson, but Nick Fitzgerald, we love him. He's a fantastic player. Don't get me wrong, but this is a guy who's still a 55-56% passer. His touchdown-to-interception ratio this year was 15-11. to And when you talk about the highest-rated passers in the SEC, he was 11th out of 13 who qualify. Fitzgerald was only ahead of Felipe Franks and Kellen Mond, and neither one of them looked like a standout performer in the SEC. But I want to keep it on Moorhead to some degree, and he talked about him being an outsider. And Starkville is a very unique place. That is deep south. That's all there is to it. There's not much going on there. They love their Bulldogs, and rightfully so. But this is a guy who played and coached at Fordham in New York. Before he got to Penn State, pretty much all of his time was being spent uh, either in the Northeast or he spent some time in the Rust Belt as well. I'm curious how much rope he's going to get if he does not have a lot of success early because this is the type of place that could potentially have a knee-jerk reaction and say, you know what, he's not one of us. Get him out of here. Now, Dan Mullen, he's not a Southern guy either. He came from the Northeast. I think he played in the New Hampshire area back in the day. But do you have to worry about maybe this is you know a right size, wrong shape type of thing? Because he's not a Southern guy. Is he going to understand? We always talk about SEC culture. Is he going to understand this SEC culture? That's that's the big question mark, of course. But And I think that there are some people who look at a case like Brett Bielema and they say, okay, a guy who didn't have these Southern roots and he really struggled in recruiting. Square peg, round hole. Exactly. Great and, coach. And is he going to be that, that type of guy? Time will tell. But in my opinion, the job that he's been able to do at different places and the way that he's been able to see his system work, he wasn't necessarily a big-time recruiter, but I think what people are going to learn about Joe Moorhead, and we're going to see this a lot at SEC Media Days, he's got a swagger about him. He's got kind of a Southern swagger about him where he'll cut your head off. He doesn't care. I mean, the the first thing that he said to, to Mississippi State players was, hey, uh, I hope you guys know your ring size because uh, that's that's what I came here to do. I and, heard that. And yeah. that's, that's he not was not bashful. He was not bashful when he walked in the door. Not at all. He, he's got some swagger about him. I think he is going to fit in well with this conference. His personality is, is very conducive to being able to play in all different kinds of climates. He's going to be able to throw the ball with different types of quarterbacks, I think, as long as they're somewhat mobile. 
Um, I, I think this is a guy who is going to fit in. Now, is he going to be able to have that that high-quality defense? I don't know. Time will tell. But he has run his own program before, like we talked about at Fordham. This isn't a guy who is completely new at, at you know all the nuances of calling timeouts and doing stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm beating a dead horse here, but I just love Moorhead for that program, and I think he's going to be able to do some tremendous things. Now, the Chad Morris hired Arkansas hasn't been talked about nearly as much as some of the other ones. You know, it's Arkansas, it's Chad Morris, not a huge program, not a huge name, but I think there's reason to be excited in Fayetteville. And, you know, we love Coach Bielema. We hate the fact that he's gone for what you and I do for a living. His gregarious personality is such a welcome listen to on the uh, on the conference calls every week, and we're just not going to have that anymore. Ooh, pig. Yes, we wish him well, but you know what? He just Maybe he just didn't fit in the SEC, and that's not a criticism. That's perfectly fine. But Chad Morris is the type of guy he's inheriting – an Arkansas team that really isn't going anywhere. I mean, four and eight. You're a senior quarterback. You thought we're going to have a great year. Austin Allen, he's out of eligibility. Can Cole Kelly play? Sure, there's been flashes. The defensive change from 4-3 to 3-4 didn't help anybody. Your skill guys, eh, okay at best. Up front, you're not as strong as you'd like to be. But this Arkansas program, if you're going to win you've got to be more creative than your opponent. You've got to out-scheme and out-execute and out-X and O the Auburns and the LSUs because you're not going to be able to recruit like them. You're just not going to be able to line up with 330-pound offensive linemen and blow them off the ball. That's kind of how Bielema, you know, got his reputation. You can't do that at this particular program. But Chad Morris is a very creative offensive guy. He's going to speed it up. He's going to spread it out. And he's going to try to find a way to level the playing field from a talent perspective. I think maybe not in year one, but by year two or three, I think Arkansas could be a little more competitive. I agree. And for all the shortcomings that you mentioned about Brett Bielema and the recruiting aspects and trying to recruit to his style, Chad Morris is going to be doing things completely different. Totally different. The reason he was brought in here was because this, this guy is a god in the state of Texas. And what he is going to be able to go into that state and do, if you're Arkansas and you want to win at that program, I think you've got to be able to recruit the state of Texas well. And you've got to be able to compete with the Texas A&Ms and, and even the Texases and, and the bigger programs in that state to be able to get those kids to come on board because those are going to be the type of players that are going to fill your offensive personnel. And Chad Morris has done a tremendous job recruiting at every place that he has been at Everybody wants to talk about the fact that he recruited Deshaun Watson. Well, there's another recruit that I go back to that I think people kind of forget about, but it's it's interesting when you sort of you know connect the dots a little bit. He recruited Chad Kelly to Clemson. That's true. And Chad Kelly yeah. was a, a guy who beat Alabama, and that's what everybody is trying to do in this conference. Chad Morris had a a ringing endorsement from Gus Malzahn, and he was able to bring in guys like Deshaun Watson and Chad Kelly. And if you're Arkansas, maybe you're thinking. Maybe this guy has the secret sauce. Maybe he knows just what it takes to beat a team like Alabama. As you said, you're not going to be able to line up and beat them in the trenches. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to get those athletes. If you can maybe scheme against them, go over the top, be able to hit them with a little bit of tempo, I think that's something that Morris is going to be able to bring to this program that it's been lacking. Is that going to translate into 9-10 win seasons on a consistent basis? I don't think so, but I think they stand a much better chance of competing with the big boys than they did a month ago. Okay, we haven't talked too much about Jimbo Fisher leaving Florida State and going to Texas A&M. It's a sexy move. It's an expensive move. I, can, I Of course, I can justify it if you're Texas A&M. They have everything in the world from a money perspective and a facility perspective, and let's face it, they want it. This program wants to be nationally relevant. That being said, 
Do we truly believe that the only thing separating A&M from a national championship the last almost 80 years is a head coach? Is Jimbo Fisher going to show up and all of a sudden going to push this program over the edge? I think the Aggies are one of those pretend powerhouses around the country. They have a lot of cachet, and it sounds like they win 10 games every year, but if you pay attention historically, they don't. They really don't. Pretend powerhouse. Can Jimbo be the difference all by himself? First of all, thoughts and prayers. I didn't get to say this last week, but thoughts and prayers with the loss of Jimbo to your Florida State Seminoles. I know that's been... um, Has anybody given you any flack for that on the internet? I, I don't think so. You've been able to sort of I've been too busy putting together the coaching staff with coach Taggart in Tallahassee I haven't paid any attention right okay so that's a good thing so you've been able to duck all the criticism for your your Jimbo Fisher takes to this point that's good but yeah that's the ultimate question of can he take this program to the heights that they think they should be at I think it was Peter Burns who threw out a tweet about Texas A&M saying how this is a program that has top five facilities they have the number two recruiting ground in the country number one if you ask some people um, but you're going to be able to have the state of Texas in your backyard. You're kind of capitalizing at a time when when the Longhorns really aren't at their peak and they're not this national power yet under Tom Herman. They're recruiting really well right now, though. They are. They're recruiting tremendously, and Tom Herman looks like the guy moving forward. So, I mean, there are all those aspects that come into play. And then, oh, by the way, you got to play in the West. And that that's a that's a brutal thing to have to do every single year to know that you're, you're going to have to face Auburn. You're going to have to face Nick Saban. You're going to have to face LSU. And, and that that's just such a difficult thing to be able to overcome on a yearly basis. And, and oh, by the way, home and home with Clemson starting next year. Oh, that's... So you don't get away from Dabo Swinney either. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, that, that could very easily be an 8-4 and four team. And I, I think that you got to give Texas A&M credit for going out and getting their guy and saying... This is what winning means to our program. 10 years, $75 million, yeah, we'll pay that. We don't really care. If he's, if he's able to bring us national championships, we'll sign him for that lifetime contract. We'll bring him in for our – we'll let him sign his own check. We, we, we don't really care about that. We want to be able to win in this conference. We, want, we know that our time to be able to succeed is now. And you've got a, a stadium that, you know, what are they, number three in attendance every on a pretty much so. yearly basis? Mm-hmm. And you've got the fan support, you've got you know the booster support, and all these things that you're going to be able to do. I think that Jimbo has the right situation around him, and if he is that guy, that that great coach that that he's been made out to be, maybe the last five six years, he's going to win at Texas A&M. You know, A&M fans better get used to the fact that this is a different head coach than you've had, and this is a different offense than you've had. This is not hurried up, spread it out, a hundred plays a game. Jimbo Fisher does not roll like that. And I know that Texas A&M recruiting is a lot different from Arkansas. But we talked about previously what Arkansas needs to do to compete with an Alabama or an Auburn or an LSU. You got to scheme it up. You got to be fancy with the X and O's. You got to hurry up and beat them over the top to level the playing field. You're not going to do that with Jimbo Fisher. He doesn't run a hurry up, spread it out, fast, fast, fast offense. His offense is about precision and being run perfectly. And he doesn't want to run 90 plays a game. He wants to run 60 and run them perfectly. So you better have the athletes. You better have a quarterback in particular that can handle his brand of coaching because there's only so many kids who can do that. Every now and then you get a Jameis Winston who just feeds off the criticism and the hardcore coaching and being yelled at every time he misses a throw on third down. Some guys can handle that. But the 21st century athlete, not a lot of them can Just say millennials, JC. Just say it. I I criticize him way too much, (laughs) rightfully so, but I need to get away from that particular word. But is Kellen Mond going to be able to handle that? 
Is Nick Starkle going to be able to handle that? Because Jimbo Fisher, yes, he carves guys into first-round draft picks, but he also destroys some kids too. And EJ Manuel is a guy I got to know a little bit when I was in Tallahassee, and Jimbo just beat him to death. He did not have it between the years to handle that type of coaching. Not that he wasn't intelligent. EJ is an incredibly intelligent young man. But I don't know if he had the confidence and just the inner strength to handle just being browbeaten series after series. You need a special guy to handle that. And Jimbo Fisher is going to bring some serious fire. But offensively, this is going to be a different, different team. You're not beating guys with speed anymore. You have superior athletes running superior, sophisticated offense. And you better be sharp or it's not going to look any good. It's going to look like it did in Tallahassee this year with the true freshman. Yeah, but you can be a disciplinarian in this day and age. And I think even Nick Saban has sort of changed his philosophy when it comes to dealing with, as you put it, the 21st century athlete and knowing that you there are different ways to motivate them that isn't necessarily, okay, we're going to sit here and we're going to beat up this kid. I, I don't want to say that, that Jimbo is just going to coach his way and he's not going to take any prisoners for it at Texas A&M. I think that given the fact that there's not the same amount of pressure on him and maybe some some of that outside turmoil that that he had and some of the friction that he had with the administration at Florida State. Maybe he's a little bit of a different guy. And maybe this is a guy who... He's a richer guy. We know that. He is a much richer guy. He can afford two Christmas trees. Did you know that? Well, he can afford to replace (laughs) a Christmas tree and have a guy come in and take it out. But Uh. yeah, no, Jimbo, I think we, we might be able to see a little bit of a different personality from him. Maybe a guy who's not as on edge all the time and is 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 willing to have a little bit more patience because he has a little bit more more patience from the powers that be at Texas A&M. So it it's a really interesting move and I you know we we talked about the fact that we didn't ever think this was going to happen because if you're Jimbo Fisher I know I didn't. Why would you play against Nick Saban in the division when you could play against him in a national championship and now he's going to get that showdown every single year. You know, go figure that when we were talking about that opener uh, this past season with Florida State and Alabama, that the next time Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher would meet would be in a regular season SEC game. How crazy is that wow. to think about? I hadn't thought about it that way, but that is very interesting. All right, we have to get to it. Your favorite hire, your least favorite hire of the five new guys, which move do you love and which move are you loathe? Well, I talked about it before, but Moorhead. Moorhead's my guy. I mean, and everybody's going to point to the fact that coming from Big Ten country, of course I love the Joe Moorhead hire, but I, I just think the fact that he is going to fit in and the, the transition there is going to be a relatively seamless one. I think that he is going to be able to do some big things with that offense. He's the guy that I looked at and said that makes the absolute most sense for this program and the fact that they're getting him a little bit lesser than what other coaches like Jimbo Fisher and Dan Mullen are being paid. I thought that was the perfect fit. And then my least favorite hire, you know, I don't hate this hire, but I, just for the reasons I outlined earlier with the risk that comes associated with it is probably Jeremy Pruitt. And you're mm-hmm. looking at a guy who we don't know if he's going to be able to run his own program. He can recruit. We know that, but you know who who else could recruit? Butch Jones. And you know who else could you know, kind of play up the the whole administrative thing and, and really uh, seem like a guy who was on board with, with everything that they had going was, was Butch Jones. And now you're looking at a guy who's going to want to do things his way, and we don't know how that relationship is going to be, and we don't know if he's going to be able to handle the fact that seven, eight wins is not good enough in Knoxville. It doesn't matter that they didn't win an SEC game last year. So that's the question that I or that's that's the hire that I have the most questions about. I don't want to say I hate the hire, but I'm most skeptical about it. Well, hopefully the trash can is the first thing to go. Oh, man. We didn't talk about it much, but the move I like the most is actually Dan Mullen to Florida. And I I just don't see a whole lot of questions out there. We know he can coach. 
We know he can coach in this conference. We know he can mold quarterbacks. We know he can score points. I think that it's a no-brainer hire. I really do. Even though he was the third choice on the list behind Chip Kelly and Scott Frost, he seems like the best guy that was out there. It just makes a lot of sense to me. The only question I have, and I've mentioned this on this show and others, is I'm curious how this changes his story on the recruiting trail. When you're at Mississippi State, it's a lot of two- and three-star kids. The the occasional four- and five-star, you got to fill out your depth chart with a lot of JUCO transfers. you got kids that are used to coming in and maybe having a red shirt and sit around for a year or two. That's different at Florida. When you got these four- and five-star kids, they want to play right away, and they expect to be playing right away. And those are just different conversations with the four- and five-star athlete versus the two- and three-star athlete. We'll see how he transitions there. But I still love the hire. The one that I like the least, I'm not saying I don't like it, but yeah, I'm with you. I think it's Jeremy Pruitt in Tennessee. I don't care what Vol Nation says to me or to anybody else. This was clearly their ninth, 10th, maybe 11th choice on the list. They can spin this however they want. You can tell me, yeah, but this was Philip Fulmer's first choice. Come on. I mean, the program looked like just absolutely off the rails for 26 agonizing days which is how long it took you to fire Butch Jones and to hire Jeremy Pruitt. And here's another reason I have to question it. You bring in Philip Fulmer, you get rid of John Curry as your AD. It's all about, you know, we need to have Tennessee guys. We need to have people who bleed orange and understand Knoxville and have ties to this program, and they're going to be loyal. And you bring in the ultimate Alabama guy. And I know Jeremy Pruitt has a great resume. He's won national championships. He's a monster on the recruiting trail. But what loyalty does he have to Tennessee? He's grown up his entire life being on the other side of that rivalry the third Saturday in October. Who's to say he doesn't have two good years and flip somewhere else like Lane Kiffin did not that long ago? What loyalty is he going to have to this program? I think he can be a good coach, but of the five choices, I like his the least. Yeah, and and I think that's a fair point to make in the fact that if you're looking at a situation where we don't know how long Nick Saban wants to be at Alabama, we don't know if he's going to be five more years, ten more years, Jeremy Pruitt just saying, well, we know there's going to be a long list, Dabo Sweeney included, of guys who would potentially want to take that job at Alabama. Very true. Is Jeremy and Pruitt Kirby be- Smart, but presumably right. by that point, Kirby Smart is going to be a lot more entrenched at Georgia, and Dabo is going to be a lot more entrenched in Clemson. How entrenched is Pruitt going to be at Tennessee at that point? Kirby's at least a Georgia guy, though. I mean, of course. Right. And I, Which I would, you would think would almost remove him. And I, I would absolutely think that he would be he would be the least likely to want to move from a, a place like Athens, where if he, if he can win there i mean he's he's got it made in the shade i think but i do think that's an interesting discussion that we'll look at maybe a few years down the road and say all right is is there some temptation there i know tennessee fans hate thinking about their school being a stepping stone job for anyone else most delusional fan base in america hey those are your words your words you stick by that you should trademark that i think i think that'd be good should with, I? The, with the little hashtag gbo at the end of it <laughs> i think that'd be pretty good i would i would love to see make money off of that i think you're uh, you're overdue for a little bit of a royalty check hopefully for that. no gbo types are tracked this podcast they might know a little closer where i live uh let's go ahead and close the show out with uh spinning ahead to 2018 again uh the heisman trophy was just awarded this past saturday clearly it was a runaway with baker mayfield uh one of the highest vote getting situations in the history of the award number two and number three really didn't have much of a chance but let's talk about 2018 this is two years in a row the sec hasn't gotten anywhere near the heisman trophy is there any reason to believe 2018 will be any different 
Well, I think so. And I, I do think that going into any given year, you can look at the guys that are going to be returning and say, all right, there's at least a couple guys who will be in the conversation. And I'll start off with the most cliche one is Jalen Hurts. And people look at his numbers this year. And yeah, I understand that it's it's a numbers-driven award, but I think winning has a whole lot to do with it. A guy like Mason Rudolph, who led the country in passing, wasn't even really at, I mean, what did he finish? Sixth in voting or something like sixth. that? I think sixth. So it's not all numbers. If you're if you're the quarterback of the number one team in the country and you throw for 2,500 yards, you rush for 1,000 yards, you maybe have 30, 35 touchdowns, I don't think it's crazy to think that Jalen Hurts in year two of Brian Dable's offense is going to be able to uh, make that that jump statistically speaking once he gets some receiver once he gets those that trust down with his his young receivers which is a big if I know but um, I think Jalen Hurts is a guy that could be on the Heisman radar and then another guy that I'm not sure if people are really talking about I, I saw Andy Staples mentioned him too in in this conversation but DeAndre Swift Georgia Definitely. running back absolutely could be in that conversation I mean guy who's running for 8.2 yards of carry this year. And the interesting thing with Swift is, yeah, technically he's a third string guy behind Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb, but there are 322 carries between Michelle and Chubb that are going to be available. And I think the guy who is running for 8.2 yards of carry is going to get a whole lot of those carries. So I think that he is a really interesting name to to, to keep in mind. And then, you know, of course, Jared Stidham, of course. Who, who else are we going to talk about besides him at this point? You know, a guy who I talked about coming into the season that he shouldn't have been on the list of Heisman candidates at all whatsoever, but that was because he had three career starts. But now that he's had a full season under his belt, another year in Gus Malzahn's offense, of course, the big question about Kerryon Johnson and if they can potentially find a replacement if and when he goes to the NFL uh, is a big question for this team. But did I take all three of your Heisman candidates? I hope I didn't. Actually, no. You only took one of the three. I'm all actually right. down on you. I like the fact that you're <laughs> in studio here. I can actually see the Jarrett Stidham egg on your face <laughs> since I was all in on him and you weren't. But I'm actually going to, even though I've, I've championed the cause for Jalen Hurts and I've made a case for him to at least go to New York both last year and this, I'm going to turn the page on him as a Heisman Trophy okay. candidate. I think he is what he is at this point. I think he's a sensational player. I think he can win any game he starts against any program in America. And it wouldn't surprise me if he wins the national championship this year. But I think he is what he is. I don't think he's all of a sudden going to develop into this 3,000-yard passer with 30 touchdowns, completing at a 68% clip, being able to make all the intermediate throws and the like that we've complained about before we haven't seen. I think he is what he is. I think it's a lot of predetermined throws behind the line of scrimmage. I think it's the occasional deep shot off of play action, maybe some waggle type stuff. But I don't think he's going to become this incredible pocket passer because that's not his game. And another thing, as a voter, as someone who's kind of seen this the last decade or so, writers are fickle and they always want to find the new thing. And Jalen Hurts, even if he does have a sensational 2018, he's a name we'll have known by now. It's just like Lamar Jackson this past year. I mean, statistically, he was every bit as good in 2017 as he was in 2016. And it's remarkable he even got to New York. There was almost no conversation about him as a candidate because we'd already seen it. He'd already done it. Let's find the next guy. That's why I'm over it in terms of Jalen Hurts. Sensational player, but he's not a candidate. But what about Baker Mayfield? Doesn't that sort of disprove the theory? To some degree, yes. To some degree, yes. And I actually wrote, of course... Uh, early in the season that he wasn't a great candidate for me because he's basically been this guy the last three years. I think that Mayfield to some degree wins, not only because Oklahoma had a great year, but there was really a dearth of candidates out there. There wasn't anybody out there who really stated a strong case. There weren't a lot of quarterbacks just doing unbelievable things on winning teams, which helps when you play that position. 
there weren't a lot of tailbacks doing unbelievable things. Saquon right. Barkley was, but then he fell apart. I think that if Saquon Barkley had continued on his arc, he wins the Heisman, not Baker Mayfield. I think that he was sort of the valedictorian of summer school this year, as I like to say. Great, great player, not taking anything away. But I actually think that hurt his case in September and October. It wasn't until the middle of the season or so, combined with Barkley falling, where Mayfield's star really started to rise because we had seen him before. So that's my conversation for Jalen Hurts. I'm actually going to turn the page on Jarrett Stidham as well. I think he's a fantastic player. But I don't think for that team, for that coach, and that offense, a quarterback can win the Heisman Trophy. Because at its essence, Gus Malzahn wants to run the ball and run it with pace. And even this year, despite the things that Stidham did, that offense really went because of Kerryon Johnson. The running back, that might be the one offense in America where the running back is still more special and more more dependent on than the quarterback is. I think that's a fair... Yeah, I mean... That's interesting to think about, too, because I think if you look at his numbers um, this season, they weren't blow-you-away numbers, but he played well in the second half of the season. Definitely. And once he got into the flow of that offense, and I think we saw a different player, what will be interesting to see is if he does take that next step with his rushing as well. And I think that's what could really sort of turn the page. If he if he's a guy that can get double-digit rushing touchdowns and he's throwing you know 25 touchdown passes in a season, I think there is room just for these guys to get to New York. Maybe not necessarily win the award but we're talking about an sec uh, you know the sec being left out the last two years not even having a representative in new york and that that nobody even making a strong case for it that's that's incredible and i would have to go back and look look at history and find the last time that that really happened where you had i mean from pretty much start to finish there was really no legitimate top four top five candidate i know carry on johnson had a, a little bit of a flirtation into the discussion but then of course when he got hurt against alabama uh, that conversation sort of uh, went away. But, I mean, it, it's weird to think about. And I think part of this to blame is for the fact that, and this is a little bit of a different discussion, but why is the Heisman Trophy only inviting three candidates? Why are they not inviting five on a yearly it's, basis? It's a breakdown of how the voting works. It, it, it's it's a percentage of voting, of voting gotten. I mean, I, I can't answer it. Even though I am a voter, I can't answer this question perfectly. But basically, if you've got four or five guys who get a certain percentage of the vote, they'll invite four or five guys. But this year, it was so top-heavy with those three, it didn't make any sense to bring more than three. But what, So that's the exact point that I would have is you knew Baker Mayfield was going to win this award. There was no suspense whatsoever. We saw the ratings were down significantly. Terrible. Why not bring two extra kids? I mean, last year, you, you were able to bring five kids to this, and I, I made the comparison. Jabril Peppers was there knowing he had absolutely no shot to win this award. Everybody knew Lamar Jackson was going to win that award, and Jabril Peppers was able to be there and just enjoy the experience. Why not give a couple extra kids that Heisman experience just to be part of that whole, you know, the whole weekend of festivities that goes along with that? Let these kids be celebrated for their work and what they are able to do. I'm not talking about a participation trophy. I know we can get into that discussion, but you're a 21st century athlete yourself. Maybe a little bit, but, you know, (laughs) I just think that having having those kids being able to experience that when it really doesn't. It's not a whole. It's it's not going to really change the conversation to be able to have those kids there as well. I think it's just something that's long overdue, and they should make it yearly to have at least five kids there. Yeah, I can't necessarily disagree with that. And yeah, get get in there just to enjoy the experience and do the media hype and do all the tours and take all the photos and just be a part of it. Yeah, it is a special, it's a special time in any athlete's life. So sure, open it up to five. I'm fine with that. But in terms of the candidacy, I'm actually going to buck the trend. You're going to be surprised to hear me say this, Uh-oh. but. In, in terms of quarterbacks out of the SEC who could win this next year, 
I actually think the best odds are Nick Fitzgerald. Really? I can't believe I'm saying that because I was the one just arguing crazy back in September that I would take Shea Patterson over Nick Fitzgerald any day of the week. But I just think in this offense, with Joe Moorhead coming in with something to prove, if he is indeed 100% healthy and we assume he's going to be, why couldn't Nick Fitzgerald develop a little more as a passer and throw 30 touchdowns? Why couldn't he be every bit as effective on the ground and run for 20 touchdowns? Why couldn't he have just one of these insane Tim Tebow-esque seasons in 2007 where, yeah, you lost four ball games, but the stats are just too incredible to ignore? I think it's possible Nick Fitzgerald could be that guy. Is he a great candidate? No. But the best odds I would give an SEC quarterback, I would have him ahead of Jalen Hurts and ahead of Jared Stenham. This is all because of the Joe Moorhead thing. I, I talked you into that, didn't I? It helped. Yeah. It no, definitely it, helped. It, it helped. And I watched enough Penn State football this year to say that was fun to watch. That looks like a great offense to play in. Oh, absolutely. And that's going to be able to recruit itself. I mean, wrinkles on top. I mean, you got RPOs and like, this guy's got wrinkles on top of his wrinkles. Saquon Barkley throws passes if he sees things. I mean, the read option is really, really extended in this offense. Yeah, they're going to be able to do some, they're going to be able to put up bigger numbers, I think, than they even were with Dan Mullen. And it's interesting that you say, what if he has a Tim Tebow-like season, of course, after Dan Mullen leaves Starkville. How ironic Irony alert. Be? Irony yeah. alert. No, that, that, but I think I think that Mississippi State is going to be a lot of fun to watch next year. Nick Fitzgerald is maybe not going to get um, a lot of the preseason buzz because we know the name, at least in the SEC, we know the name. Maybe he's not that national he's guy not. yet he's because not. he hasn't had that big-time victory no. yet. If he had beaten Alabama, I think that conversation would have shifted a little bit. Um, but he's a guy that could definitely creep into the conversation. I'm a little bit mad at myself that I didn't include him in that, though. I like DeAndre Swift at the tailback position. I don't know if there's a great candidate outside of him. Two years ago, we thought it was going to be Leonard Fournette. Wasn't healthy. It didn't happen. This year, we thought it was going to be Darius Geis. Not totally healthy. That didn't happen. I like DeAndre Swift. There's going to be a lot of carries there. Now, he's not the only tailback in you know in Athens. We know that. I mean, there's still going to be Holyfield there and Harry in, and they got other recruits coming in. So it's not like he's going to all of a sudden get 300 carries, right. and he's not going to be Derrick Henry all over again. But... He should get enough touches, and he's certainly shown us what he can do. Is there any chance at all, any chance a guy like Benny Snell I was r- just runs thinking for 1,800 yards and gets on the radar? I was, if, I was just about to say that. I think that's absolutely worth discussing, the way that he finished the season. Like I'd love guy, to watch him play. He just got it. And I love, you know, we, we ripped the, the AP, all, the all-SEC team that the AP came up with last week. But we love the fact that they gave the nod to Benny Snell, a guy who really played tremendous, played his best football down the stretch, a guy that really understands that offense and is able to see the holes. His vision has improved so much since his freshman year. I know a lot of people like to talk about you know the, the off-field personality that comes with him, a guy who's going to be a treat at SEC Media Days if he's able to, to go to that. He I better hope be. He better be there because his personality is is electric, and I think that he's somebody that fans will gravitate to. I know that there isn't a whole lot of – national interest in watching Kentucky but if you're sitting there at you know at noon on a Saturday watch this kid play because he is the real deal somebody who could definitely creep into that discussion if he is able to you know get up into the 15 1600 uh, range and, and score a lot of touchdowns which I expect him to do in that offense yeah he had a great freshman year but remember he was splitting time with with, with Boom Williams and you wondered how good he could be as the primary guy and he answered those questions I mean I know he started off a little slow but he was unbelievable down the stretch and he's doing it against a pretty good competition and his offensive line is average at best his passing game is average at best I mean he runs it between the tackles he does wildcat stuff he does a little bit of everything and he is just tough and fun to watch he's got attitude 
it certainly hurts being in that Wildcats uniform because people don't associate that with Heisman Trophy contenders. But he is the type of guy, I think, who could go for 17 or 1800 and maybe get on the radar. I think it's possible. I think with the exception of Carrion Johnson, you could make a real case that Benny Snell was the MVP of the SEC. Take him off of that team, and what what is Kentucky? I mean, a team without a passing game, with a defense that struggled uh, far too much against inferior competition. You take away Benny Snell from the Wildcats, and that team falls apart, in my opinion. They're not getting anywhere near seven wins. I think he is uh, definitely going to be a guy to watch next year. And he, you know, he very well could be the top returning running back in the SEC. We're talking about a Kentucky back. Go figure. One other name to consider. I don't think he'll be there, but is there any shot Drew Locke goes back to Columbia? If he does, I think 45, 50 touchdown passes is on the table. Yes, but you just lose your offensive coordinator. And we talk about Heisman fatigue and, and the numbers. Is he really going to be able to build off of those numbers with a, whoever they bring in as the, as the next offensive coordinator? I, I question that. And I think that with senior quarterbacks, there is a stigma in the NFL draft and in the Heisman Trophy to say, unless you significantly improve your numbers and improve your performance in those big-time games, you're not going to get the national attention that you probably deserve. I think he's a guy that if he does return, which, by the way, I don't think he should. I think he should absolutely leave for the NFL. I think he is a guy that could put up 40, 40 touchdown passes and still not necessarily get even a blip on the radar with the Heisman conversation because of those things that are working against him and the fact that it's going to be so hard to expect more out of him because he has already raised the bar so high in what he was able to do in that offense. And in his defense, it wasn't just the Yukons of the world that he that he was able to have these big-time games against. We were really critical of him and, and the whole Missouri offense of, just beating up on these inferior opponents, they played well against the SEC. And there were a few teams that were able to do what he did against Georgia. In that game where he was able to stretch the field big time, he is, uh, in my opinion... I promise you, Oklahoma's watching that tape. Oh, absolutely. And as as they should. And that, that he's a guy that if he does come back... I, I will have my eyes on him, but I think nationally speaking, he'd be a little bit tougher to get in that conversation. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be coming back, mostly because you talk to NFL draft types and his name is rising up some draft boards. I yep. think he's there's no chance he's going to be there. You mentioned a hypo leaving, but you know what? He's looking like a first-round pick right now, and by the time you're done with the combine and all those things, I think he might be in the conversation for the first quarterback off the board ahead of maybe a Josh Rosen and some of these other guys, Sam Donald and the like. I think it was yeah, it was Dan Patrick who said last week there's a scout who trusts him a lot. He said, you know, everybody's going to talk about Darnold, Rosen, and Mayfield and Jackson and all these guys, but the name to keep your eye on is Drew Locke, and he's a guy that can creep up these draft boards. He's the same scout that talked about Pat Mahomes as being that up-and-coming mm-hmm. candidate, and then Pat Mahomes, of course, has taken number 10 overall. So uh, I do think that he is a guy that's going to rise up on draft boards, and as long as he is able to do well in these combine scenarios and the interviews and all that stuff, I think he's going to be a guy that's going to be just fine in the NFL. Connor, it was awesome to have you here, and that beard is so much more majestic in person. Oh, I know. It just it doesn't do it justice to be able to hear it over the phone from my mom's <laughs> basement. It just doesn't. <laughs> that's Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter, at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me, at SaturdayJC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, Ticket City and Crystal. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found. Be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ. For all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.